Hello and welcome to another episode of Parsha Lab by Aleph Beta. I am your co-host, Imu Shalev. That makes me your other co-host, Rabbi David Foreman. And we are super excited to jump into Parshat Bishalach, the Parsha best known for the splitting of the sea, which we will not be focusing on today. Oh man, really? I like the splitting of the sea. I know. That's why we're focusing on the second half of the Parsha, the oft-look-past stories of the complaints of the Dor HaMidbar. Rabbi Foreman, I, I noticed something really interesting in the Parsha this week. I don't know what to make of it yet, but I wanted to, to show you what I noticed and ask you about it. Okay, I am all ears. Okay, so right after um, the people of Israel sing their song of Az Yashir, they show up to this place called Mara, where they complain about the fact that they, they have very bitter water. They can't drink it. And God provides for them sweetened water. So let me just read this Pasuk with you. It's, el Hashem, Hashem eitz, el hamaim, sham so God basically showed a, a, a tree or a stick or something that, that got put in the water, sweetened the water. And then here's the part I want to focus on. Sham sam mishpat v'sham nisahu. There, God placed for them chok and mishpat, some, some law, v'sham uh, nisahu. And there, he tested them. Okay, so I'm not exactly sure what is the chok mishpat, what, what's the, uh, the law there, what was the test, right? What, what test is he giving them? And did they pass? I'm not sure. But that word, nisahu, is actually something of a leading word throughout this parsha. Um, it's a word that shows up again and again and again. Um, can I give you a few more examples? You can. Okay, great. So in the very next story, right, so we have complaint about bitter waters. In the very next story, there is complaint about no food. And if you jump with me into chapter 16, verse number 4, God says that he's going to provide them bread from the, from the heavens. Bread from the heavens. The people are going to go out and gather that day's portion uh, on that day. So I can test the people to see whether they're going to follow my law or not. So there's that word test again. Um, then... If you go to the very next story, so they had bitter water, no food. And the story after that, again, they have no water. So not bitter water, but no water. In chapter 17, verse 2, Moshe says, why are you, why are you fighting with me? Why are you complaining uh, about the lack of water? And why are you testing God? So the last two times you had God is the one who's testing here. For some reason, the people are testing God. And then just a few verses a little bit later, we get told, The name of this place where they didn't have water is actually called testing and strife. Right? On their fight uh, and on their testing of God. And then because there shouldn't be a story in this Parsha without this word, at, right after the battle of Amalek, Moshe decides to recognize God. He builds a mizbeach, an altar. Chapter 7, verse 15. He builds a mizbeach, and he calls the name of that mizbeach, which is cool, I didn't know that altars get names, but he calls it Hashem Nisi, 
God is my banner. But that word, nisi, is the same word of nisayon and nasa, right, to test, which seems, seems pretty on purpose, right? doesn't seem like an, a coincidence in this week's Parsha. So, Rabbi Foreman, I've given you a whole bunch of mentions of this word and a whole bunch of stories that seem like vignettes, a day in the life of, of the Dor Hamidbar and their various complaints. What do you make of this pattern? Well... It certainly seems to be a pattern. Let's start off by by suggesting that this doesn't seem to be coincidence. You don't get a word like nace used over and over again in all these different contexts unless uh, it it is doing something. And I think, you know, the most ground floor level of a theory that we can develop is that these stories are connected. So as you're you're kind of suggesting, uh, the proper way to learn these stories are not as individual anecdotes that first this happened and then, oh, look, that happened, and then something else happened, but there's a larger story developing and the word Nisayon is going to be one of the threads that's going to tie through this story. So I think the challenge that faces us is what's the larger story? And, and as part of the larger story, it feels to me like the word Nisayon is is developing. Um, it has It can have positive, it can have negative connotations, and it can mean entirely different things. It seems to mean at least three different kinds of things, uh, two kinds of tests, and then a banner that seems in some way to be related to that, but a, a kind of test which seems to have good connotations, or at least potentially positive connotations, where God... How, how, do, you, how do you mean that it has good connotations? A test well, has good connotations? And again, the question is, you know, how we define test. But if you look at it just in its very first context, right? What was the first test? It's it's sham sam lochalku mishpat v'sham nisahu. Their God provided them some sort of law and some sort of test. It could be negative, but there's at least the possibility that that there's a a positive test here too. And again, it I think gets into what what we mean by a test or what we mean by a trial. Uh, if you think about trials. In um, in the Torah, um, are they negative or are they positive? And it you know the, of course the classic trial of all right is going to be the Akedah, is going to be the binding of Isaac. And the question is you know what was the nature of that trial? And I think you know you and I I feel like we must have discussed this in Aleph Beta videos somewhere. But the notion of the Akedah as a kind of trial is uh, one you know, second I, just just for our viewers who don't who don't know why why are we saying that the Akedah is a test right? I'm just pointing out the fact that the the text introduces. The fact that Hashem Nisa at Abraham, right? It, that's the one of the classic cases of this word, right? Um, and so the challenge, of course, is is that when we think of God trying Abraham, Hashem Nisa at Avram, that God tried Abraham, what does that mean theologically? It creates a big conundrum, right? Which is that here's a God who's supposed to know everything, and He's testing you. And doesn't God know what's in your heart? So if God knows what's in your heart, why is he testing you? And this is something which Rishonim, you know, earlier commentators, uh, the Ramban talks about this famously. And, uh, and so there is the notion of a test that God sorts of imposes upon people that has positive connotations or is a test that is designed to sort of bring out a latent potential. If I'm not mistaken, the Ramban's theory is that the purpose of the test is to bring something from potentiality into actuality, which is it's one thing to have the potential to serve God in a certain way. It's another thing to actualize that into real life. And sometimes we do that through tests. In other words, there are even moments in our own lives which we find as as kind of cruci- as sort of kind of crucibles, moments that 
try us in some way. And when we look back on our lives and we say, you know, uh, in some way, as much as the trial was uncomfortable, as much as it was painful, but it was a crucial aspect of my growth as a human being, what we really mean is getting back to the Rambam's idea that there was something latent within me that I had a chance to actually encounter some sort of difficulty in life. And through that, I changed as a human being. It reminds me of Aaron Sorkin in his master class, where uh, so far I haven't actually taken any of those master classes, but I keep on seeing them on Facebook. And in just my little 30-second Facebook Aaron Sorkin thing, you know, he talks about how in order to work on a script, he's got to have I think what he calls intention and obstacle, right? Intention is I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to get the girl. I got to get the money. I got to get to Philadelphia. It doesn't matter what my intention is, but there has to be something I want really, really badly. But in order to start a script, I need an obstacle. There's something that's formidable that's getting in the way of me actually actualizing that 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 intention and the encounter between intention and obstacle is the beginning of a strip script. That's what makes a story. That's what makes something exciting. And that's what allows a character to change and to grow. And basically intention and obstacle is what it's about when you think of trials, right? You, you, the, the, the Nisayan is a trial. There is something I want. And then it's like, oh my gosh, how do I, how do I get past this obstacle? But if I can surmount that somehow and deal with it, then somehow I'm a changed person. So that's one possibility when we talk about this. So, so just to, to summarize here, it sounds like what you're saying is that this word nisayon doesn't mean just to test someone traditionally and to see whether or not they're going to be doing the right thing, but that the test, as you're saying, brings some latent potential in a person out. And, and maybe that, that kind of explains why the word nisayon, which is classically translated as uh, a test, could also mean uh, a trial and maybe even mean experience, right? If someone has nisayon in, in life, it means that they've had a lot of experience, um, perhaps because their their potential has, through through their life experience, has begun to become actualized. No, no, no. I think it's kind of interesting when we talk of, sort of in modern Hebrew, I think we talk about nisayon literally to mean experience and that you want somebody, a handyman with experience because through experiences you learn. And, you know, it's one thing to go to school and learn how to be a handyman. It's another thing to have actual life experience that teaches you how to become the best handyman you can be. And so we want somebody with experience that's encountered trouble and managed to find the way around it. And I wonder if there's an interesting pedagogic point here for for all you teacher listeners is that there's a major difference between a test that you give in class that simply assesses whether your students have knowledge and a test that you can actually learn from a test that brings out potential yeah and and you think about a teacher a teacher is the classic non-omniscient authority figure Right. So whereas God knows everything and there's no reason for God to test you, the challenge with being a teacher is you could say that, look, I don't know everything. So it's my job to test a kid. Or you could say that, no, you know, God in the Torah establishes another kind of test, a different kind of test, a test which is not designed for the teacher, but designed for the student, a test which is designed to get some potential that's latent into actuality. And those kinds of tests are actually kind of gratifying to take as a kid. So, so Rabbi Foreman, I, I want to ask you, based on this theory, at least in the first two instances of this word, it, it does seem like God is testing the people or, or perhaps bringing out their latent potential. So how would you, how would you read those first two stories? 
Yeah, so you know, I agree with you that the 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 notion of the test in the first story that we're having to do with the water is highly cryptic. It's unclear. My instinct uh, in just reading it quickly is it seems like it's connected to the very next test with 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 the food, almost as if there's a water and food challenge which go back to back, and the food challenge comes with laws, and hence the test is will you keep the laws, which sort of gives broad context to water and food, which is God's going to give water, he's going to give food, and yet there's going to be law that comes with it, along with the test, will you keep the law? So it almost feels to me like those perhaps go together. The The challenge then is, you know, what's the nature of these laws, What's the nature of the test? And this is something which actually you and I have touched on before in researching our, I think our last year's Shavuot video, if I'm not mistaken, where we talked about the nature of law with the manna. So uh, you want to maybe bring us up to date on that? Because that might have, I think, some some kind of resonance over here. Yeah, sure. I'm not sure we can go fully into it in this in this podcast, but if you haven't listened to our last year's Shavuot video, we cover pretty heavily um, Parshas B'Shalach, strangely. Um, but yeah, a- along with the Mun, there was law given, uh, specifically the laws of, of Shabbos, but also some other laws that were specifically Mun related. Um, and those laws seem to be designed uh, to, to make sure that the people understand that they're getting their bread from God. What do you mean by that? So, so good question. I'll try, try and cover it quickly. Um, there are three there are three laws that we get with the man. One is Omer la Gugolet. Each person could only collect enough man for their family. You, could, you couldn't, you know, collect an extra portion. Um, you couldn't leave it over for the next day. You had to eat the, that portion for that day. You couldn't hoard the man uh, and save it for, for future days. Um, and on Friday, there'd be a double portion uh, and you wouldn't be allowed to go out and collect on on Shabbos, right? There wouldn't there wouldn't be anyone on Shabbos, but you weren't supposed to go out and collect. Um, and seemingly, the common denominator between all three of these is you have to recognize that you're not in control of the food. You can't take extra. You can't hoard. You can't leave it over for the next day and, and create a stockpile. And you shouldn't expect that it's going to come out on Shabbos, right? The idea here is you can't be the one to control your food source, you have to rely that it's going to come from God. God's going to take care of you. He's going to make sure there's just enough for you every single day. And um, and don't worry about it. Don't don't be so greedy and, and take more than you need because God's going to provide for you. So keeping that in mind, Imu, I want to go back to this notion of, of test and this test as a way of gaining experience and bringing something from actuality into potential. Because if you think about that, it's one thing to sort of intellectually know that your bread comes from God. It's another thing to sort of experience it and live by that in a way in which your actions live up to what it is that it's in your head. You know, it's one thing to to philosophize about bread coming from God. It's another thing to live by it. And, you know, it's a kind of tricky thing. If you're telling me not to control one of the most basic things in my life that I require for existence when I'm in the desert and there is no other way of getting sustenance, there is something challenging about it. And there's also something benevolent about it. You know, I think you asked me before about how a test could be benevolent. One of the things we explored when we actually did that Shavuos video, and if you haven't seen it yet, go take a look. We'll, we'll put a link for it in, uh, in the description to this podcast. Um, but one of the fascinating things about these laws is that they're like, we call them, I think, training wheel laws in the sense that you can't break them. With all of these laws, there was something miraculous that happened 
that made it actually impossible to break. Almost as like a, a father lovingly hold on to your back of your tricycle. And it's like, I'm here and I'm here and there's no way that you can lose, right? If you hoarded in the desert, what would happen? And, and the Torah comes out and says it. If you hoarded, so it doesn't make a difference. If you collected more than an Omer, when you got home, there was just an Omer in the sack. If you collected less than an Omer, there was, there was an Omer in the sack. There was the same amount, no matter how much you collected. If you tried to to go out on Shabbos, you wouldn't find any manna there. You could try to collect on Shabbos. It, it, just, it just wouldn't work. So these laws were designed in a way that you couldn't fail, almost as if what God is doing is ushering us into a new kind of life, that one of the differences between the old life and the new life is that we're on our way to Sinai, and the new life comes with law. But law is something you got to get used to, the notion that law can be benevolent, that God could love you and take care of you and provide for you, and, and yet there be laws and rules for them, that it's it's helpful to follow those laws is like a whole new thing for slaves, that where laws are, are a way that a king takes advantage of you and, and beats you down. And the people are getting training wheel laws. They're getting an experience of law that changes them as people, that helps them make the transition from, in my head, there is God and my bread comes from God, to what does that mean in real life? And, and their experience with that may be something that builds them up. That was really interesting. Uh, we're going to be right back, but take a listen to this riveting commercial for Aleph Beta. Really, Foreman, I'm feeling kind of bad. Emu, do you know one of the main parts of my job? What is it? Keeping you from feeling bad. Every day, Emu walks into my office, and he's either glum or happy. And if it's glum Emu for the rest of the day, I've got to make a happy Emu. Do you know what I do to make you happy? I make you coffee. I learn Torah with you. I do all things. I try to soothe you. That's my job. Emu, how can I soothe you? Why are you feeling so bad? Well, I know we said in this podcast we're going to focus on the second half of the Parsha, but do you think we could give the people anything having to do with the splitting of the sea? I mean, it's Parsha's Beshalach. I feel like that's what they're here for. You know, you are absolutely right, Emu. Now that you mentioned this, I feel bad too. Instead of lifting you out of the doldrums, you have plunged me down into the depths. What are we going to do for these people who want to talk about uh, the splitting of the sea around their Shabbos table? What should they look for, Emu? I believe you've done an amazing Parsha video up at alephbeta.org. For those of you who don't know this, Rabbi Foreman and I actually run a website called alephbeta.org where we make amazing Parsha videos. There actually is a, a really cool one on the splitting of the sea, which Imu is referencing. Uh, without giving away the store to you, uh, the rabbis talk about these fruit trees in the middle of the splitting of the sea. Why are they there? Nobody knows. It's something we explore in this video. Go to alephbeta.org, check it out, among many other Aleph Beta videos. And Imu, uh, your father figure, uh, your mashkiach figure from yeshiva will award you and your friend double mitzvah points. You know we live for double mitzvah points around here. Imu. I'm not, I'm not so sure I'm going to be so generous. I'll at least say that I won't give you any Avera points. No Avera points? For watching our video on the fruit trees, go to alafeda.org. Your spiritual destiny awaits you. Okay, wow, that's that's really powerful. Sounds like um, the people of Israel are really going on this this experiment. I like that analogy you said about the training wheels because uh, the people of Israel are really in their infancy stages in their relationship with God. So I kind of like that imagery of the people on, on their bike with the training wheels, with a loving God, kind of helping them along and providing for them. Um, so let's take it to the, the, uh, the other mentions of this word. So those are 
the first two episodes are uh, God testing the people. But if we go to um, 17.2, um, the episode where there's no water again, um, there, there seems to be a fight. The people are fighting with Moshe, Bayarab Ami Moshe, and Moshe says they're testing God. God is the one who's testing them, but here the people seemingly, according to Moshe, are testing God. What's that about? So look at that verse a little bit more carefully. There's actually some a little disconnect inside of it. The word over here, Emu's pointing us to verse 2 in chapter 17. Vayarev ha'ami Moshe, and the people argued with Moshe, um, and vayomru, and they said, Give us water so that we can drink. Vayomer lehem Moshe, and Moshe says, madi, What are you fighting with me for? Why are you testing God? To me, the disconnect is, and what I would ask you to consider, Imu, is how do you see those last two uh, phrases of the verse as connected to each other? Phrase number one, Moses says, Why are you fighting with me? Phrase number two, Why are you testing God like this? How do those two things go together? Well, they seem disjointed because Moshe is saying that their, their fight here is with him. But he's saying that their fight with him seems to be a test of God. Like there's two, there's two different subjects, right? Are you, are you fighting with Moshe? Are you testing Moshe? Or are you fighting with God and testing exactly. God? Exactly. Right. No, I mean, to put it another way, the fact that you are choosing to fight with me is an affront to, and in essence, a test of God's patience, which is the whole point here, the whole point of training wheels, right, is to learn how to ride a bike. But if you come along and say, I'm not interested in riding a bike, I want to take the elevator instead, that's like an affront to dad who's trying to help you ride a bike. So you could say, well, I want to ride this kind of bike, I want to ride that kind of bike, I want to go slower, I want to go faster, but I have to interact with dad trying to help me ride the bike. I can't go saying, dad, let's do elevators instead. That's an affront to dad who's helping you drive the bike. Similar here, what this is all about, this whole experience, is learning to live with the notion that God provides food. What's the greater front to that. The greater front to that is that if you argue, if you're scared, what does Moshe want? Right? If you're scared, what should you do, people of Israel? If you don't have water and you don't know where water is coming from, and you're trying to get used to the notion that God is giving you water, what should you, you do turn next? To God. Exactly. So you want to scream at God? Scream at God. You want to complain to God? Complain to God. My problem isn't the complaint. My problem is who you're complaining at. Don't look at me. They're striving with Moshe and they're saying, give us water, Moses. No, the whole point is I'm not the one who gives you water. God's the one who gives you water. Look over there. You see the one holding the training wheels? So Moshe says, you're, you're, you're breaking the rules of the test. The one rule of the test is at least engage around, what, around the notion of the test. Talk to God. What are you arguing with me for? The emphasis is on me rather than argue. What are you arguing with me for? By doing that, you are flipping the test around. You're rejecting the test. My, and in essence, you're taking a loving test where God is trying to help you get used to an idea and you're flipping it around and you're testing God's patience, right? Because you're saying, no, 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 it's, it's all Moses. So, so in light of that, can you, you want to read verse 7, which I think supports what, you, what you're trying to say? Yeah, and I think it really does. So let's take a look at verse 7. And therefore they call the name of the place Masa Umariva, testing and strife. I'll read B'nai Israel because of the, the strife of Israel with, with Moses. And 
They're testing God by saying, Is God really with us or not? And the question I would ask you, Imu, is, what do you mean by saying, is God really with us or not? They didn't say it. Right? And it was the, the people never said, Hayesh Hashem Bekirbeinu Imai, and point me to the verse where they said that. So how come they're being accused Their of saying that? Their actions seem to, seem to be saying this, which is actually, it's actually kind of neat, because if you're not sure that there really is a God, you might be acting in a way in which you, well, I'll, I'll say it this way. If you're not sure that God is really with you and that he's caring for you and taking, and taking care of you, then your recourse is to act as if he's not, which is, and, and you're, you're going to argue with your leader, you're going to argue with Moshe instead of dealing with God. Once you're dealing with God, then you're not, you're not concerned if he's with you or not. I don't know if I said exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, it's precisely, well, it's precisely as you say, their actions are speaking louder than their words. And their, and their actions are saying, we're not dealing with God, we're dealing with Moses. And why? The answer is they are so scared that they are succumbing to cowardice in this test. And the succumbing of cowardice is, is that I'm not going to engage around the fear that comes with having my everyday mundane needs in the hands of a transcendent loving God, because what if he doesn't love me? And what if I let him down? And will he still be there? And instead, let me ignore him and flip the test and try his patience by ignoring him. And how do I ignore him? Because what am I saying? The way I justify to myself why I'm looking to Moses and not God is I say, look, uh, I don't know, is God really there? Can't touch him. I can't feel him. I don't really know. Yeah, it's true I'm getting manna. It looks like it's coming from heaven. It's true I'm getting water miraculously. But let me close my eyes to the obvious truth around me, deal with Moses and wonder, is, is God really there? And can I really trust putting myself in his hands? And if I feel I can't trust it, then I can justify to myself my cowardice or my, my inability to engage him. And, and basically, that's why the story is such a letdown at this moment. And right at the story, who should show up but the great nemesis uh, of the Jewish people, Amalek. Um, and it almost seems like the external enemy at this point that confronts us is nothing but an externalization of a kind of internal enemy that we're struggling with, this, this feeling uh, is God really with us or not? I'll quote something my my 10th grade Rebbe, Rabbi Kalman Weinreb, used to say about Amalek, that the numerical value of Amalek, the gematria, if you add up the numerical values of all the letters, happens to equate with the word suffolk, right? Which is to be unsure. And my friend, right? we, don't do, something we don't about do Amalek. a lot of gematria together. We, I know, I'm not such a Kabbalist, what can I tell you? But this is cute, so I'm throwing it in. But there's something about Amalek that plays with our insecurity. And, it's, and, and you know, it's one thing to be insecure because uh, what's objectively around you is unknowable. But sometimes it's knowable. Sometimes when you're getting manna from heaven, you're just getting manna from heaven. That's the way it is. Sumi, the transcendent God is actually giving me stuff. It's right here. It's objective and it's there. And if in the face of that, if I retreat into suffolk, into uncertainty, I don't know. I don't know where God is. I don't. It's really an act of cowardice. And at that point, somehow that opens yourself up to this confrontation with an external enemy. And uh, so I think this is, you know, some way of beginning to build the larger story that is woven together, uh, you know, with this this notion of nisayon that you're beginning to talk about. Wait, but um, but then help me understand Moshe's mizbeach. Why is that Hashem nisi, which seems to be not at all a test, right? The word Hashem nisi is God is my banner. You know, don't know the answer to that, but I'll give you a, a quick speculation, which is what does a past test look like? 
if I manage to pass the test, right? If somehow I manage to pass the test. Victory. So then what does it look like? What does victory look like? So it's interesting that victory looks like a banner being waved in the air, a victory banner. The victory banner in this case is that, yes, there is God there. God is my banner. I've somehow vanquished this question mark of my own cowardice, and I'm happy to proudly wave this notion that God is here in my life and that, and, and God is my banner. And then it, it, it comes back to that um, you know, notion of, of how did they defeat Amalek at this point? Right? They defeat Amalek if you look at the war. Right? Isn't this the war where they defeat Amalek with the hands raised? It is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and, and, and if you think about what the Gemara, what the Mishnah and Rosh Hashanah actually says about those hands, it really fits into the story in a beautiful way, right? That the Mishnah says, so when Moses' hands are raised, they win the war. And when, when his hands aren't raised, they don't win the war. So what? So Moshe's hands win the war? It's about Moshe's hands? What, what's the hands? And yet, when the hands are raised, it's like you're looking above the hands and you see God. And when you choose to see God, so then you win the war. And when you choose to ignore him, then you lose the war. Hmm. And the challenge that allows you to win the war is, are you going to make the choice to see the transcendent God in heaven that provides the food? Or are you going to bury your head in the sand and look down to the ground where bread usually comes from and just say, no, there is no such as bread, such thing as bread that comes from the sky. There's only bread that comes from the ground. This must be it. I just have to figure out how, in which case you are blinding yourself to the truth of the reality that you're living in. So if you can be courageous enough to accept the the challenge of the relationship with a God that provides you with bread from heaven, then you can be uh, successful in the war. If you're successful in the war, God's your bread. That's actually, that's really incredible. So so Moshe's building of the Mizbeach somehow um, is the expression of, of, past, of the past test. It, it somehow he, he lays the victory at God's feet. Um, and says, Hashem Nisi, God, God is my banner, um, and he is the one who, who uh, has provided this victory. It actually reminds me of, of a line in Adon Olam, Hu Nisi Umanos Li, where we say about yep. God that he, he is our banner and also our refuge, which is actually a, a really cool play on, on that word. Right? Hu Nisi, he is my banner, Umanos, and my refuge. Um, so mm-hmm. if, if you are able to rely on God, if he, then he can, you know, at once be, be the banner of your victory and, and a place that you will always be able to, to flee to, um, a being who will always take care of you. Good. That's beautiful, actually. If you think about it, that it is through accepting that God is my manos, that God is my refuge, that I win the test Mm. and God becomes my banner and I stand for God, Mm -hmm. right? So ironically, that great sort of masculine victory in war that where you raise the banner like in that Iwo Jima victory, you know, photo of the, of the Marines, right? What that is in our own spiritual war is if you think about refuge, refuge is a soldier trying to escape overwhelming odds. So when I, I can't win and I'm able to take refuge in God, that is the kind of victory moment where I can raise the flag aloft and say that I've won. And I think you're right. That's exactly where Avadon Olam comes from. Hashem Nisi probably is a play off of this verse in Adon Olam. God is my banner. And maybe Manosli uh, is, is a kind of explanation along the lines of what you've suggested here of, of, uh, of what's happening in this story. So maybe Adon Olam tells the story in two words. Beautiful. Thank you, Rabbi Foreman, for helping me 
see these these little episodes in Parshas B'Shalach that have always kind of bugged me as one uh, one larger story. Um, it's really, really inspiring. Thank you, Emu, for helping me to see it too. One of the fun things about these podcasts that Emu really tries to do is insist on not telling me what he's going to talk about uh, before we before we record so we can actually do this and think it through in real time. Guys, until next time, this is uh, Rabbi Foreman and Emu Shalev. We'll be signing out and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, please make sure to rate us in the iTunes store. Share this podcast with all your friends. And as always, visit us at alephbeta.org for some incredible Torah insights and videos that you will love.